Welcome to Main Street on this Thursday on Prairie Public. I'm Craig Blumenschein with my co-host Ashley Thornburg. Hello. How are you, Ashley? I am well. I've had a lot of, you know, chocolate and a little caffeine too. A little chocolate. <laughs> we talked a lot about chocolate yesterday and we're going to talk a little bit more about chocolate today. Of course, we are in the middle of our short and sweet pledge drive. But we'll talk about that in just a minute. I want to let our listeners know what we have coming up in the second half of today's show. It really is a fun family sky-watching event this weekend. A planetarium show, One World, One Sky, Big Birds Adventure with MSUM's planetarium director, Dr. Sarah Schultz. You know a little bit more about this, Ashley? Yeah, I do. In fact, you'll even get the opportunity to make a birthday card for Elmo uh, because his birthday is right around the corner. Happy birthday, Elmo! So, yes, and then learn about the night sky and have a lot of fun and educational activities. Uh, and we also are going to have a movie review from Madeline about the new Godzilla that sounds like it's doing pretty from well. From what I understand, yeah. this is maybe the best Godzilla movie that's come <laughs> our way. So it that'll be fun like to hear from you. Yeah, and in just a hot minute, it, we're going to cool things down <laughs> and hear about snow sculpting as Team North Dakota Snow Sculpting uh, is in Wisconsin at the moment for the national championships. And we're going to see how they did at the world <laughs> championships and you were last there. weekend. I was. I was. And it was cold. <laughs> but you should warm up by doing the right thing, right? And that is investing in this service. Give us a call now at 1-800-359-4145 or click and join at prairiepublic.org. And when I say warm up, I mean, you know, because it gives you the warm fuzzies, <laughs> right? Chocolate sure will when well, that comes that, in the yeah. mail. But yeah, <laughs> warm up a little bit. We've been warmer. Maybe going to still have some snow here. As it's actually the quite lovely. month turns uh, <laughs> a little later in the month. But it is so important. And we are asking, Ashley, people to consider their pledge of support to Prairie Public. 1-800-359-4145. Prairiepublic.org. We don't do this very often, Ashley. In fact, I can tell you public radio stations around the country do this more often many times than we do. It's short and it's sweet for a reason. We don't want to interrupt our regular programming, but we want people to know that um, it's important to us that we reach out to them and have them become part of our team. It's a partnership. It absolutely is. And consider coming in at that dollar a day level. It's a little over $300 a year, but a dollar a day investing in this kind of quality programming. What else do you spend only a dollar on every single day? Any more? No. Not much. Not not much. So, but, and here, it's quality programming. 800-359-4145 or click and join at prairiepublic.org. And so I mentioned this snow sculpting. And when it gets cold, it's so easy to curl up and stay inside. And yeah, that's awfully lovely. And maybe you're going to have a Nicole's Fine Truffle while you're all curled up. But it's also really possible and really important to get out and enjoy the winter. Maybe snow sports aren't your thing. Maybe you should try a little bit of art. I recently traveled to the World Snow Sculpting Championships, a competition that Team North Dakota Snow Sculpting earned a spot in by winning last year's national championships. The most fun you can do sober and your pencil. <laughs> a ringing endorsement for looking a Great Plains winter square in the face and putting on not just pants. Long johns. But also. I've got a wicking layer with. And. Waterproof insulated bibs. And. Thermal layer underneath my jacket. And even more. Our team jacket. 
grabbing some reinforcements. Yesterday, I brought you guys oh, okay. coffee. That is so good. The hot stuff that you have mm -hmm. is a tea, a herbal tea, mm -hmm. that's from the Boreal Forest. The mayor of Stillwater just gave me a shot of tequila. And then going outside for the sake of going outside. There are options, of course. Snowmobiling, ice skating, ice fishing. But none of the usual suspects appeals to these people. They're a little different. I think uh, snow sculptures are weirdo. They're snow sculptors from obvious places like Finland and Canada, but also Ecuador and Mexico. We came from, from a city that the name is the city of the palm trees. So you can imagine we are freezing here. Team North Dakota Snow Sculpting is the reigning U.S. championship team. Jay Ray is the captain. I studied my ears here this past couple of weeks. With team members Josh Weiss. It's all uh, a part of the rich pageantry of visual texture. And Mike Nelson. I can create these really nice convex shapes. And it has a real satisfying sound when the snow is nice and cold. They keep the mood light. We're going to measure my nose crystals. We need a foot model. They're at the World Snow Sculpting Championships in Stillwater, Minnesota. We think big in Stillwater. We're not shuttering doors in January, right? Sarah Jesperson is the kind of gal who gets things done. A few years ago, we decided that we wanted to do something really vibrant in the city to try to keep the economy strong in January, which is Trixie in Minnesota. And, you know, I made phone calls to any winter event that existed. A company called Winter Fun answered my phone call and there was snow sculpting. I asked if we could do an event and they said, we've always looked for a world location. And I said, um, sign me up. And then they were like, wait, who are you? And I was like, oh, I just own a local bar. You know, I, so I ended up having enough like hoofspah to say that I think our town would do it and then partnered with the chamber. Three years later, the event is growing. Between 50 and 100,000 people walk through. And making a big impression on the local economy. Almost all of them have record-breaking weekends. The sculptors come early and get a taste of what the town has to offer. We all had a spa day together. We went to sauna, hot tub, had some robes, some Japanese flippy floppies. Nice little comfy leather chairs that have these Himalayan salt little footstools that glow and they're super hot and you put your feet on them and they feel amazing. Ooh. And I sat on one I and that like also that. felt amazing on my butt. And come Wednesday, they get to work. A lot of it's kind of just look and feel, making sure everything flows evenly without high spots or things that look out of place. Oh, jeez. <laughs> Hello. And they pretty much don't stop. Maybe all night. Even if it's so very cold. We don't want wind. We don't want sun. We don't want rain. It's not too windy. We just want bitter cold. Until their vision is made manifest. Team North Dakota's entry is called the Solace of Sleep. Imagine someone lying down like one of those salt floats. But instead of horizontal, she's vertical, 14 feet tall, with the hair floating in the air. And she almost looks like she's not even connected to this earth. 
for the hair, channel Medusa. Her worms are all crazed. Yeah. yeah. They're up. Except it's not snakes creating the wild hair. Rather, it's suspended animation. She's not Medusa. She's a woman sleeping in the most peaceful slumber you can imagine. They call her Gertie. And Gertie is also massive. We're all, you included, sitting underneath 7,000 pounds of snow. 7,000 pounds? 7,000 pounds. Even taller than the 10-foot block of snow they were given. Here's Mike Nelson explaining how they made that happen. So the very first thing we did when we got here is start cutting, meticulously cutting squares off of the very top and then carefully stacking them up like Legos where the head is so that we could get the height that we needed for this piece. The height and the hair were critical to their design. The carvers would recognize that as like a technical feat, absolutely. And it it, it ate up a lot of time, but we know that we can work quickly when we are kind of unleashed from that minutia of working in the hair. And we had pieces fall off and reattached and... What? Yeah, yeah, there's one piece of the hair that's still sitting over by the flag. Every time there's an accident on day two, it's a happy accident because you end up just working around it. So you can reattach that hair? There are a few reattachment points on the head. I'm not going to tell you where they are. So if you can't notice them, then we're doing it. Well, luckily when it's this cold, if you use a little bit of water and you have a little patience, you can freeze things and use that as make a little glue. They ran into different problems on the face. Right below her eye there is a kind of dark streak. That's just ice chunks right there. And her nose is ice, and one option is to cut it all out and try to pack snow in. doesn't always work well. The other option is to carve slowly through it and just leave it. But they felt pretty comfortable with the body. The undulations, right Jay? Especially given that their last design was a Sasquatch. She's a little less hairy than Sasquatch. We know the anatomy (laughs) parameters of a woman. We don't know the anatomy parameters of a Sasquatch, so we're a little bit more free with what we can what we can pull off. But the hardest part to pull off? Remember that suspended animation part? I don't know how it holds like this. Well, that means they want all 7,000 pounds of Gertie to defy gravity, like Aladdin riding on a magic carpet. We have an undercut that is very risky. What do you mean risky? If it was going to fail, we're not stopping it from failing, you know? Okay. If 7,000 pounds comes down, you're not going to save me. I'll push you out of the way after I get out of the way. For Team North Dakota, the floating is what makes the design so appealing. It's really hard to execute. Trying to make this bottom part of this woman figure look like she's on top of some fabric that's also floating with her. Snow and ice bring creative opportunities. Appealing to Amanda from Team Flozen, who's from Florida. We're frozen. She normally works in sand. So with sand, I wouldn't be able to have these these undercuts and some of the cut throughs that are going on here because with gravity, we all know sand wants to be laying flat on the beach and not elevated. Okay, so, so an undercut, you mean sort of this hollowing oh, out? Yes, hollowing oh. out, um, you know, the overhangs. You can't do any of that stuff with sand, typically, unless you have the most amazing sand in the world that has more clay in it. Her team's sculpture is a commentary on how we portray ourselves. You know, the woman's taking this happy mask off her face, 
and she's showing how she truly is. She's kind of opening up and showing how sad and or depressed or anxious she is behind the mask. Yeah. So it's about, you know, us being kind to other people because we don't know what other people are going through until you look behind that mask of happiness that some of us wear on our faces every day. I mean, it's hard sometimes to be vulnerable and to open up your heart to yeah. people and just to, you know, put on that happy face every day. Yeah. Art helped her through a very difficult time. My daughter had been struggling through COVID, like major depression, suicidal. For a teenager going through COVID, you know, a lot of teens struggled through that time. They were isolated and kids need to be with other kids, you know, to develop for their mental health. And so she was really struggling each and every day. So I did a sculpture with her entangled in thorns. Mm. And then she was pushing up, like looking up to the sky, coming out of it, and the thorns are turning to flowers. Team Thune from Minnesota is worried about the direction humanity is going. Theirs is a naked man flopped over a donkey in a dopamine-fueled stupor. We communicate with grunts rather than words, our shoulders slumped and heads drooping, only our thumbs move, endlessly flicking up and down on the glowing rectangles clutched in our hands. Just a small part of our brain still works, and that part is entirely devoted to consuming the algorithm-fed images flashing before us. Team Funland from Finland made a piece on the creative process. It's a story about uh, how ideas are born. So there's uh, this uh, big head, it might be a dreaming person or something, and the idea is bursting out from the head with a very powerful blast. Is that how your ideas feel? Um, sometimes. <laughs> the good ideas at least. Okay. What do the bad ideas feel like? Way uh, more fun? Um, it might be some sort of explosion too, but uh, maybe not so nice. <laughs> Carlos from Team Mexican Snow went for bucolic beauty. I love horses. It's one of my favorite animals, and I knew that with the river behind us, it was going to look beautiful. Any landscape, you put two horses, and it becomes a beauty. <laughs> Not one horse? <laughs> nope. They're going for texture, and they took a big risk. And we designed a, a tool, a special tool for this texture, but we couldn't try it until we came here. So we came just crossing our fingers that it was going to work, and it, it works, yeah. Team Fjordwitches from Quebec faced a totally unexpected challenge, one that left them unimpressed with their airline. Air Caca Nada. We say Air Caca Nada because Caca is like poop in French. So it's Air Caca Nada. <laughs> because while all three teammates arrived, their luggage did not. We were like poor uh, people with nothing. Uh. Team North Dakota lent them their tools. Even though it's technically a competition, everyone here is just happy to be among their own kind. Do you know a lot of people uh, that would uh, spend uh, four days uh, in the snow uh, doing this? Uh, it's like tons of snow. Which is an interesting wrinkle when it comes to the judging process. The teams themselves pick the winner. They can't vote for themselves, but after that, they factor in their own criteria for what makes a snow sculpture good. Complexity, if something's really intricate, delicate, we know that it took a lot of extra, extra time and yeah. 
with snow, uh, it really helps to utilize shadow because it's just so white and it absorbs light. So if you have just a big round ball, it's not going to look very interesting. But if you make a bunch of carvings into it, then you're utilizing shadow play and you get a more dynamic, dramatic piece. This part was especially taxing for Marie-Claude Paris-Tanguay from Team Fjord Witches. How are you feeling about judging? Well, it's not going so well because uh, the more I look at the sculpture, the more difficult it's becoming to choose. So <laughs> I'm like suffering. <laughs> my heart <laughs> cries. And I already cried two times. Oh my God. And I'm not at the end of the line, so I don't know how many times I will cry until I reach the end. <laughs> you actually cried? Yeah, the caribou's. Have you seen the one in the middle that he has just his head? Oh, man, when, they, when I've seen it, I, it was too much. I, I cried. <laughs> this one, too. It's like if he has a soul, eh? He's like strong-minded. He's, a, you know, but a quiet uh, strength inside. I mean, so I cried there, too. <laughs> Team North Dakota relied on their gravity-defying element because it was so difficult to achieve. Make some noise. Three days and 40 plus hours of carving later, it's time for the winners. In third place, Team North Dakota. All right! Let's go! They're on the podium in their first world competition. And the camaraderie that was built up over these days, it's as strong as ever as they cheer on the winners. First place. 2024 World Snow Stomping Champions are the Fjord Witches! Yay! There are Fjord Witches! That's Come awesome! On. I voted for them. Me and Jaden first for them. Alright! Hey! Congratulations! For her part, Marie-Claude isn't letting it go to her head. <laughs> What's the opposite of eternal? Ephemeral? Ephemeral? Yeah. Oh, that's, yeah. that's how we describe the fact that it would last maybe one week and then yeah. uh, it's done. Yeah. C'est de l'art, it's art. Mm -hmm. De l'art éphémère. Okay. It will disappear. Ephemeral art. That is the kind of the thing though about this art form is you do have to practice letting go. Oh, yeah. A couple hours in the sun, and these are... Yes. And if not, uh, one week later, uh, they put the bulldozer in it anyway. <laughs> it must be so much fun <laughs> to drive the bulldozer. <laughs> I would like to try once. <laughs> Maybe they'll let you, I don't know. <laughs> yes, that's right. I should stay one more week and ask to drive the bulldozer. Team North Dakota dissected how they can improve and are already getting ready for the next challenge, defending their national title. And like true artists, they're not taking the easy path. Are you going to do a different design? Always different. We always want to challenge ourselves, try something different. So Someday no. snow carving is going to make me a billionaire, so <laughs> she knows that. She knows that. She says that all the time. Do you know how much money a billion dollars is, Josh? <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> I've never been. I've never been good with money. For Main Street, I'm Ashley Thornburg.
if you're lucky enough like we are to be in Fargo, in West Fargo at the Veterans Plaza, you can see Team North Dakota's wonderful, wonderful work. And they will be defending their national title in Lake Geneva, Wisconsin during the city's Winterfest, January 31st through February 4th. And now, some history with another Plains Folk essay from Tom Ezern. This one's titled, Jackrabbit Pie. Beginning here with a confession. I have never dined on whitetail jackrabbit. When I write about culinary topics, I generally do so from considerable personal experience. But here I am, reading an essay under the title, Jackrabbit Pie, and I may not know what I'm talking about. Because years ago, curious, I asked an experienced woman who I reckoned knew her way around a kitchen if she knew how to cook jackrabbit. She said yes. Oh, it required onions, lots of onions, and time, lots of time, a long, slow braise, from which I concluded uh, this isn't worth the trouble, and a jackrabbit is probably hard to skin anyway, and a hare that runs 40 miles per hour has to be pretty stringy. Now, in Mammals of the Great Plains, a masterly work of reference, I read, the species generally is considered superior to the black-tailed jackrabbit as food because white-tails are somewhat heavier and the meat has a more pleasant taste. But there is that weaselly passive voice is considered, which leaves me in doubt that any of the authors of Mammals of the Great Plains ever ate jackrabbit either. Let us consult the authorities the people of the prairies. There are many casual references to dining on jackrabbit pie or jackrabbit stew, never on roast or fried jackrabbit. The first reference I find is in the spring of 1885 when a settler named Hawks picked up a field stone, killed a rabbit with it, and then enjoyed rabbit pie with his family. Even in territorial times, jackrabbit was not a preferred source of protein. The Hope Pioneer in early December 1886 noted that with recent cold weather, farmers were killing chickens and hogs for winter consumption. Those that had no hogs to kill, the editor observes, commenced killing jackrabbits for their winter supply. There was a local winter trade in rabbit carcasses, however. In January 1889, the Alert in Jamestown announced jackrabbits, are hung up by the heels in front of the meat markets. They are just as good to eat as any rabbit, said one of the market men today, and a good many people are fond of them. Read the local reportage carefully, and it becomes plain that the consumption of jackrabbit pie or stew was a convivial ritual, something to engage in with invited friends on a lark. A Riverside correspondent in 1888 reported on an old bachelor who organized such culinary adventures. Four ladies and nine gents helped one of our old batches eat jackrabbit and johnny cake the other day. He says, come again, for he has two more jackrabbits frozen up, ready to cook. All seemed well in this 1906 report from Langdon. Monday evening, Pastor G. L. Wilson of the Presbyterian Church and six of his boys were entertained at a jackrabbit supper, their hostess being Mrs. McGruer. The pie supper was voted as being a huge success by the entire party, and the boys and their leader are organizing a hunt for another jackrabbit and another pie. A poet published in the Oaks Times in April 1891, however, advised any young man seeking a wife to raise his culinary standards. 
he must forget jackrabbit stew is cheap and most nutritious too. Whatever its social niche, jackrabbit persisted as at least an occasional offering in local markets. 1912-1913, journalist noted that jackrabbits were exceedingly plentiful in the eastern part of the state and were appearing in Fargo shops. Zervis Market of Moorhead listed jackrabbits as a delicacy, and Hauser Brothers of Fargo advertised large white jackrabbits, each 40 cents. Let's see, an eight-pound rabbit dressed out to perhaps five, that's eight cents a pound, uh, about half the price of chicken at the time. So perhaps someone in our prairie land will advise me as to whether I really want to try jackrabbit. Only if you've done it yourself. Dr. Tom Ezern is a distinguished professor of history at North Dakota State University. Still to come on Main Street, the stars of PBS. But as a reminder, you can always make your support by calling 800-359-4145 or clicking and joining at prairiepublic.org during this, our short and sweet member drive. Stars of PBS after this. Arts programming on Prairie Public is supported in part by the North Dakota Council on the Arts, a state agency developing, promoting, and supporting the arts in North Dakota. Welcome back to Main Street on Prairie Public. I'm Craig Blumenschein in studio with my co-host, Ashley Thornburg. Hello. Chocolate, 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 Ashley. Mm -hmm. We're in our short and sweet fun drive, our short and sweet pledge drive, and we are encouraging people to become supporting members of Prairie Public, 800-359-4145. PrairiePublic.org. Ashley, the support of our listeners is critical to our mission, which is to provide quality programming, not only the local programming that you and I produce, but NPR's programming, which most don't realize it's not free. (laughs) Yeah, super not free. (laughs) Pledging support helps programming. Yes, it costs uh, tens of thousands of dollars for each of the programs that you hear kind of on average here. Some, of course, are more expensive than others. Uh, But All of that adds up. We spend a great deal of money bringing you shows like Morning Edition and All Things Considered and Wait With Words and Wait, Wait, Don't Tell Me and Radio Lab. And then, like Craig mentioned, a show like this that is locally produced, following along this Team North Dakota like we were doing in the first half. Now we're going to learn about an event that Prairie Public's Education Services Department is in charge of, and that's you know, educating children. So it's programming and it's professionals who care about curiosity, who care about honoring your intellect. That's what you're investing in when you call 800-359-4145 or when you click and join at prairiepublic.org. Just want to quickly remind people that every pledge will be automatically entered into our ultimate date night drawing. That's at the Donaldson Hotel Awesome, awesome pledge gift. I think a $100 gift card to the Blarney Stone goes with that. A pair of movie tickets and popcorn at the Fargo Theater. It's a great way to also consider supporting Prairie Public. Give us a call right now. There's no better time. 800-359-4145. 
And joining us now is Dr. Sarah Schultz. She is the Planetarium Director at Minnesota State University, Moorhead. Dr. Schultz, thanks so much for joining us today. Absolutely. Thanks for having me. And we also have Dr. Tim Wallenzine. He heads up the Education Department right here at Prairie Public. Dr. Wallenzine, thank you for joining us You're today. You're welcome. My pleasure. So together you are in studio to talk about this big stars of PBS show coming up in this, the 50th year for the MSUM Planetarium. Since there's a heavy PBS connection, Tim, why don't you go ahead and, and tell us the bulk? What's what's going on here? Well, the, the main attraction, of course, is the Planetarium show, uh, the stars of PBS, and it features PBS characters and uh, a look at the sky and uh, lots of information and fun stuff uh, around the topic of space and uh, and uh, planets and and so on. And then uh, throughout the day, we'll have activities that are STEM related and just plain fun for kids and families <laughs> uh, to do in the Center for Business, which is just across the street from the planetarium at MSUM. And this is all coming up Saturday, February 3rd, 8 a.m. to 3 p.m. Sarah, the stars of PBS, meaning some characters you'll recognize from PBS, are going to be making appearances. But obviously, there's no constellation Elmo. <laughs> <laughs> no, we'd love to have that. But, you know, um, maybe we can petition for that. Hey, maybe we can. But, but what will the planetarium show itself be. So the planetarium show will be One World, One Sky, Big Bird's Adventure. And that features Big Bird and Elmo and their friend Hu Hu Zhu from China. And it's the whole idea is that the sky looks the same to us here in the United States as it does in China. So we all mm. share one sky. And we get to look at the moon. I mean, what about the southern hemisphere, though? Well, so that's what we mean. It's, it's So the northern hemisphere, so China is at, a, at the same latitude as the yeah. United States is. Okay. So that's why specifically we're looking at China. But, sure. But you're right. Yeah, people in the southern hemisphere have a different sky than we do. But <laughs> um, we all share the moon, so that's good. Yeah. But, yeah, so it's basically just looking at the sky and learning a little bit of um, about our culture versus Chinese culture and things like that, too. Yeah. But you know, kids love it. Well, give us a little bit more detail there. How is how are you studying cultural differences when it comes to things like planetary alignment? Well, so really, we're we're looking at how um, what we call different constellations oh, and things that. like that. So, um, you know, in the United States, we might use have a different story too. So, mm. for example, off the top of my head, I can think of the fact that um, in China. We, so in the United States, we usually we often will say there's the face in the moon, the man in the moon, mm -hmm. or the woman in the moon. And um, in China, they see a rabbit. And so there's a story about the rabbit on the moon and how it got oh. there. And so, you know, it's just sharing different stories and uh, just learning about each other and how things are similar and how things are different. Sure, sure. You've done stories like this in the past. What is the reaction? Kids love it. They love it. They just, they love lear learning new things. Kids love stories? They do. Okay. I mean, right? <laughs> Why do we read to them? Because they love stories. Everybody loves stories. Um, but yeah, it's, it's really fun for them to hmm. see um, similarities. Because you think a lot of times when you think of a different country or a different uh, language or something like that, you think, oh, they must be so different. Mm -hmm. But then you actually learn about all the things that really make them it's just the same. We're all humans, and we all love stories, and we love lo love looking at the sky. Yeah, and we talk about the moon, and you know, it's 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 a lot of fun. Yeah, Tim, the 
second part of this title here for the One World, One Sky is Big Bird's Adventure. Uh, tell us about the characters who are going to be at the show uh, and, and some of the activities. Is Big Bird going to be there? Big Bird is not going to okay, be okay. there. Okay, okay. So Big Bird's <laughs> on the screen, but yep. kids will have the chance to meet other characters. Well, they will have a chance to meet Clifford the Big oh, Red I Dog. I love that. Okay. And Clifford is really excited to be making an appearance here uh, this year. He'll be there all day long. Um, he, he comes out, and kids can, can shake his hand and take a picture with him. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, he'll be, he'll be in, the, in the Center for Business throughout the day. Um, and then there are also... It's a good fit for MSUM with the big right? red, big red yes. dog. Yes, yeah. yes. Yeah. yeah. And we also, <laughs> have, uh-huh. we also have a, uh, a birthday card-making um, center for Elmo because it actually is Elmo's birthday on February 3rd. We didn't know that. Happy yeah. birthday, Elmo. But we tried to get Elmo to come, but he was busy. He well, was actually birthday. having He's his own birthday party, yeah, right? Well, so I'm pretty sure that's where Big Bird is, too. Yeah. I think he's yeah. ce- oh. celebrating with Elmo. So. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So we can make cards and send them. And again, the event is coming up a Saturday, February 3rd, 8 a.m. to 3 p.m. on the campus of Minnesota State University. Moorhead, specifically the Planetarium and the Center for Business. It is the One World, One Sky, Big Birds Adventure. Tim, popularity-wise, with characters, you know, where are we at? Are all the kids still all about Elmo, or are we getting more into the the Super Y? Or one, I my kids old enough, I don't know the new shows anymore. <laughs> uh, really, any of the characters that 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 come are are recognizable mm. and well loved by kids. Yeah, uh, there are the, you know the ones that are more popular would be Elmo, um, Daniel Tiger. And, uh, you know, then there's Curious George and there's Super Y and there's Wild Kratz. I mean, there's there's all yeah. kinds of all kinds of characters. But Clifford also is a perennial favorite. You know, I apologize if this question comes a little out of left field, Tim. But if you're going to thread a weave a golden thread through why those kinds of characters have stayed popular for as long as they have, what would that be? Well, I think, you know, when kids watch PBS Kids programming, they they get a sense of the empathy and the mm-hmm. and the uh, the the authentic sort of person persona that the that the characters have, and they really do become friends. Mm-hmm. And so when kids recognize those, they feel good about about that recognition and about how that character makes them feel. Mm-hmm. And and I think it's just you know they're they're heroes because they're on TV. Uh, we don't get to see them in person very often. And something like this is just really special. Mm. That's Dr. Tim Wallenzine. He heads up the education department right here at Prairie Public. We're also having a conversation today with Dr. Sarah Schultz. She is the planetarium director at Minnesota State University, Moorhead. And we want to talk about a couple of milestones, the 100th anniversary of planetariums and the 50th anniversary of the planetarium at MSUM. We are very excited to be here that long. It's been, we've been a staple of the community. This is actually our eighth year of Stars of PBS. So okay. it's very exciting, all <laughs> kinds of fun stuff. Um, and actually this is, this year is also the hundredth anniversary of the modern planetarium. So it's the planetarium's birthday as well. Mm, wow. So I don't know if almost quite as old as the planetarium, <laughs> but 
he doesn't age a day. Five, so. You know? yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, so yeah, so Should you know, it's just, so it's, right. It's, it's great. It's just a great time to be having fun with yeah. Prairie Public and, and Elmo and Clifford and yeah. Big Bird. It's, it's a good time. What have been some of the biggest changes to planetarium displays? I presume you're using a little bit different equipment from 50 years ago. <laughs> you know, yes, we are. Um, so our projection system is digital now. Mm-hmm. Um, and so the thing that that affords us is that we can actually leave the Earth and go out into space. We can travel among the planets and even beyond our solar system, beyond our galaxy. So we can do a lot more with that. And mm-hmm. we just finally, for our 50th, we were raising money for a laser show system. So it's just music, uh, music set to lasers, imagery mm-hmm. and stuff, really fun. Not very educational, but a whole lot of fun. (laughs) Um, And so we just had that installed this month. So we're very excited. We've got lots of new stuff to see. Yeah. Um, And so there's always something happening at the planetarium. What are you most excited for this year in the actual sky? I'm going to say the April 8th total solar eclipse. Absolutely. There's nothing that can compete with that. We are, I'm taking my family. We're going down to Texas. Oh, good for you. And so we're going to hopefully have clear skies. Um, But yeah, everybody is excited about the eclipse. It's going to be, it's going to be incredible. I I saw the one in 2017. Yeah. um, And that one was about a minute and a half long. And this one is four and a half minutes. So that the first one, you're just kind of like, okay, I'm going to stand there. I'm just going to yep. take it in. Yep. And now this time you can actually like, you know, take pictures and do stuff. Right, I mean, yeah. four and a half minutes is a long of time. total <laughs> darkness in the middle yes. of the day. Yes, it is absolutely incredible. Experience. Yes, absolutely. That's Dr. Sarah Schultz. She is the Planetarium Director at Minnesota State University. Moorhead, thanks so much for your time today. Thank you. We've also been enjoying our conversation with Dr. Tim Wallenzine, who heads up the Education Department right here at Prairie Public. Thank you for your time today. You're welcome. Thank you. And again, the event is Saturday, February 3rd, 8 a.m. to 3 p.m. at Minnesota State University. Moorhead, the stars of PBS event happening at the Planetarium and the Center for Business. You can watch a planetarium show also meet clifford the big red dog and make a birthday card for elmo happy birthday elmo craig blumenshine back in the studio with ashley thornburg this is our short and sweet pledge drive 800-359-4145 we are encouraging people to become supporting sustaining members of prairie public prairie public is a partnership we've been saying this Um, for the last couple of days. We say it all the time, but we work together with NPR. We work together with many, many people in North Dakota and the Prairie region to bring you local stories that we think are important to you and that you tell us you expect. Consider supporting us. 800-359-4145, prairiepublic.org. Click the Donate Now button. Don't delay. Do it now. When you hear the fanfare, that means it's time to go off to the movies with our resident movie critic, Matt Olin. Matt, a number of Godzilla films over the past few decades. The latest one, a little bit of a commentary on Japanese culture and behavior during World War II era. Godzilla Minus One. The title, as I understand, is kind of reflective of sort of that World War II era and yes. now how Japan thinks about that. Um, but wondering, I guess, how it compares with the other Godzilla movies and what this one brings to the table. So this one is 
really, really well done, well acted. You know, the typical Godzilla movies going back to 1954, you know, it's you know horribly dubbed, uh, you know, the versions that we got over here in the States. Uh, the monster looks cheesy, but that's part of the charm, right? That's part of the charm of Godzilla. This is shot in black and white and actually looks... Um, it looks like it looks. It has a good look to it. I like this movie mm. a lot. A lot of my friends told me, they said, Matt, we know you're not really into Godzilla, but you really should go to this movie. And certainly it's up for a visual effects Oscar. It feels like a Godzilla movie with human emotions attached to it. I think that's the difference here and why this is really a, uh, to me, it's a, it's a, it's an upgrade to some of the, from some of the other Godzilla movies. So yes, it takes place right after the war. Uh, it focuses on First of all, I want to I want to credit the director Takashi Yamazaki. He's a visual effects guru who took mm. the director's chair here, and the effects are really really good. And we'll get to those in a minute. But it focuses on this fighter pilot who survived the war, and he was a kamikaze pilot at the end, but he survived. Which a lot of questions. People, you know, how did you, you know, and. I won't tell why, but it's it, it's something that bothers him. He has survivor's guilt. He needs to kind of come to grips with why he's alive and why others are dead. Uh, Godzilla shows up early in the movie and absolutely you know wreaks havoc, of course. Uh, but it it so it coincides with the end of the war, the dropping of the atomic bombs, radioactive activity, uh, continuing atomic tests by the United States in the oceans, and Godzilla, of course, is involved in this and. The Japanese military, of course, is, has, is decimated. We, are, mm. we, the United States, occupied Japan for quite a few years afterwards as, as the conquering force. And uh, so it's, it's a lot of dealing with the, the guilt of the war, how uh, soldiers and pilots were sacrificed by the Japanese Army and the Japanese Air Force uh, at, a, at an alarming rate. Yeah. And, and they have to kind of come together. He and a bunch of his friends who who work uh, sweeping mines, that's his job after the war, they have to come together and kind of fight Godzilla. What makes this movie even better, Ashley, is the human side. So the, 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 the pilot that we follow meets this woman who is taking care of an orphan baby, and they become kind of this little mini family. Hmm. Uh, and it's really touching. Uh, some of those scenes are really touching with the little the little baby that they're raising. There's some really emotional scenes when kind of the private citizens and this old admiral get together and we're going to fight Godzilla. And uh, it's just more emotional than I thought it would be. And yeah. I think that's the real driving force of what's making this movie oh. such a box office hit and a critical hit as well. Well, it sounds almost like the, the concept behind Frankenstein. You know, if you think about it and the stereotype is, you know, he's a monster and you read the book and it's actually a commentary on how humans are, are sort of monstrous in, in their behavior. In creating this, right. Yeah. Right. Hmm. Exactly. Interesting. So, yeah, it's a, it's a really good film. Uh, it's shot in black and white. There's a color version out now in theaters as well. But I saw the black and white version, lovely black and white. And let me just say the CGI effects are really amazing. When oh, when he's when he's walking through or swimming through the ocean, chasing these boats that are out to get him, it really looks like an actual monster is chasing these boats. Nice. It, and and it doesn't feel like some some CGI that that sometimes yeah. feels like oh that's CGI. Yeah. They've really done a really good job with the models and the CGI effects of Godzilla. Uh, the the boats are great. I mean, it, it's it's really. Uh, I was very surprised how much I liked this movie. But I had two friends 
that are big movie people that are like, Matt, this is mm. this is this not is really this is not going to be the cheesy mm. Godzilla versus Mothra stuff that we saw in, in theaters. And 1970s. it sounds like you don't need to have seen those. In no, order for this movie you do to not. No, nope. it's really a commentary on J- Japan's involvement in World War Two and our mm. dropping the bombs on them and occupying the country and how how Japan had to rebuild. They had to rebuild their entire culture after that after that awful conflict called World War II. Matt, there was a significant loss in the world of entertainment, not as much in the movie role, but uh, very, very famous on, on Broadway and, you know, Tony Award kind of uh, caliber talent here, Cheetah Rivera. Yeah, the original triple threat on Broadway is what the New York Times obituary said, uh, you know, multiple Tony winner, did not have the film career, uh, played Anita, on Broadway and West Side Story, and that part went to Rita Moreno in the film, which won Rita Moreno the Oscar. So again, she did not get the she did not get the film part. She was in Chicago, Kiss of the Spider Woman, great performer, you know, Tony winner, Tony nominee. Again, didn't have the big film career, but most people are familiar with who Cheetah Rivera was. Uh, and certainly a, a, a huge name in Broadway history. And died earlier this week yes. at age 91. Uh, Matt, Oscar trivia this week. Godzilla is part of kaiju, this mm-hmm. word uh, in Japanese film involving giant monster. That <laughs> <Which I thought laughs> was a wonderfully specific word. Um, has not itself won any Oscars, but in 2005, a different kaiju film uh, mm. came out. Involving a big monster and also Naomi Watts. <laughs> oh, King Kong, King Naomi Kong. Watts. Yes, yes, yes. yes. Uh, picked up three Oscars. It That film picked up three Oscars. Yeah. So visual effects. Mm-hmm. Let's go sound. Yep, two sound ones. Oh, here. Sound effects sound. editing and sound, which is yeah. now one category. Oh, okay, yeah. well, sound editing and sound mixing. Very good King Kong movie, by the way. Very emotional. I like Naomi Watts a lot in that movie, too. All right, we've been to the movies with Madeline. North Dakota Native American Essential Understanding Number 2 is about learning and storytelling. It states, Traditional teaching and the passing on of knowledge and wisdom was done through storytelling, song, ceremony, and daily way of life, often incorporating specific gender and age-specific responsibilities. These continue to be some of the best modes for learning for both Native and non-Native learners. In this episode of Dakota Datebook, we'll listen to Katie Ferris, enrolled member of the Turtle Mountain Band of the Chippewa, in part one of What Stories Teach Us. How do those stories kind of uh, either teach us or instruct us? But what I found interesting just the other day was a story that did neither. Now, that's where you, where you kind of verge from myth and uh, legend, which always has that teaching uh, component to what is this? It was a, it was a Wendigo story. So there's this uh, old man who's a Larock. It's a name from around Belcourt. This is a long time ago. But he was um, fishing, and he had set some nets out in the water, and he was busy on the shore fixing another net, and he heard something splashing. So he turned and looked, and there was a weird woman grabbing fish out of the out of his net and eating them raw. 
And he grabbed his gun and shot her. And his wife came out of the lodge and she said, you got to chop her up. She's a Wendigo. And so he did. There's no moral to that story. <laughs> it's just a story about that thing, that, that evil creature. And I was like looking at that going, you know, people are like, this is a great story. I said, yeah, it is. But it's missing that. And so it brings you to the point of, is this a legend or is this an accounting of something real? Because there was no moral. And so I think that's the funny thing when you look at history or look at any kind of story is there's that story arc. But when those stories lack that, you still, they still have value. They don't teach you anything, but they do. Because all of a sudden you have this real, this real event around a mythical creature. I'm Scott Simpson. If you'd like to learn more about the North Dakota Native American essential understandings and to listen to more indigenous elder interviews, visit www.teachingsofourelders.org. Dakota Day Book is produced in cooperation with the State Historical Society of North Dakota. Funding for this series is from Humanities ND and the North Dakota Department of Public Instruction. One final reminder to invest in Main Street during this drive, 800-359-4145 or prairiepublic.org during our short and sweet member drive. Coming up tomorrow during this time slot, The Middle takes on TikTok and should it be banned in the U.S.? There's also an episode of Science Friday coming up at 7 o'clock central. Ashley, we're going to be back Monday and we're going to take a look at the University of North Dakota's geriatric education program. It was a surprise to me to learn that the percentage of adults here in North Dakota, 85 or older, is among the highest in the country. You would think that would be in the South, or at least I did, but that is why the UND School of Medicine's Health Sciences program emphasizes geriatric training. We're going to learn a lot more about that program. As they say, aging. If it's not your issue now, it will be. We'll have that Monday on Main Street, and we hope you'll join us. 